seated. Good evening to you. Book of Judges, chapter 4. Last time we were in the book of Judges, and wasn't that a wonderful time in the Word last week? Just terrific. I am such a great fan of God's gift in Sandy's life, and it was good to just kind of sit with all of you and enjoy that, that psalm last week. But the last time we were in the book of Judges, we looked at the first three judges, Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, and now as we come to chapter 4, we begin uh, the next judge or kind of co-judges or whatever, when we come to a woman by the name of Deborah and a man by the name of Barak. And so if you're kind of keeping score at home and you're saying, all right, I'm going to count the judges as we go through the book of Judges, well, we run into a little bit of a challenge. And it, it, your salvation isn't at stake or anything like that. Um, but some people look at them and they will say, well, in the counting of the judges, we'll count Deborah as a judge and uh, Barak as a judge also. That's perfectly fine if you want to do that. Uh, others look and say, well, they were, uh, and, and I'm inclined to believe this, is that God intended all along that uh, Barak would be the judge and that Deborah would kind of be the one that God used to call him into being the next judge of Israel. He's not willing to take that position independent of Deborah, as we're going to see. says, I'm not going if you're not going. And so she kind of comes alongside him. And so, uh, so sometimes they'll look and say, well, they aren't two judges. It's kind of a tag team, if you'll excuse a, uh, a wrestling illustration or, or, you know, imagery. And, uh, but, you know... Nothing really matters related to that except if you're, you're trying to count them and then we get to Gideon and say, well, what number judges he? These are the problems that we face as we study uh, the Bible. Anyway, chapter 4, verse 1. When Ehud uh, was dead, speaking of one of the previous judges, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we see this whole cycle of sin and bondage and... and um, and then the cry for deliverance, God raising up a, a judge or a deliverer, and then t- setting them free, and then the whole cycle beginning again. And so it is that it starts again. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they decide after a while, well, this walking with God, it's very prosperous, and it's a very wonderful way to live and everything. But, you know, we haven't tried sin in a long time. Maybe it's, maybe it's working a little different in our lives. You'd think that about this time, after having been through this cycle three times already, that somebody would stand up and say, hey, have you ever noticed that every time we choose to go into sin, we end up being brought into bondage by one of our enemies? Life is miserable for decades. And then finally, when we're impoverished and we're sick of the condition that our sin and our bondage has put us into, we rise up and we cry out, for God, uh, to God to raise up a deliverer, return to obedience to God. Why don't we just skip like that whole disobedience phase and just obey Him all the way through? And it would really be, I'm not making excuses for them because we have the power of the Spirit to do that, but it would be really easy. There'd be no like uh, competition to that uh, kind of decision making except for the fact that sin lies. The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin lies. And one of the lies that sin tells us and that we apparently fall for on a regular basis is 
you're different. I mean, you've walked with God for a while now. I mean, you've walked during the whole time of Ehud's life and everything. You used to not be able to handle sin and rebellion against God, but you're a lot smarter than that now. You can take it to your, you know, bosom and you won't be burnt by it. And so, and then we're suckers for this lie because it appeals to our pride and, and our false sense of our spirituality. And so the cycle then then continues. Um, we're told that the, the entire time that Ehud was alive as a judge, the children of Israel walked obedient to the Lord. As soon as he died, as soon as his godly influence was removed from among the children of Israel, they went back to sin. I hope that none of us as Christians have given any mere human being, I don't care who they are, how God has used them, this kind of place in our lives where we walk with God simply because they are alive or the conviction that they bring into my life. So this, this whole thing was very unhealthy. It wasn't Ehud's fault. But they walked with God as long as he was alive and he was an influence there. As soon as he's dead, they just jettison the whole thing and they go back to sin. i tell you why I mentioned it. Every once in a while, um, you know, some kind of a you know, great leader, someone that God has really used in the body of Christ will uh, give in to sin and it will be kind of a public scandal in the United States and in the world. And so many people then lose their faith, or they're stumbled by that. Only Christ is to have that kind of influence uh, in our lives where uh, we should never be moved if somebody, whether somebody else walks with the Lord or doesn't walk with the Lord, should have no effect on our commitment to walk with God. Our relationship should be independent an independent commitment to God, independent of everyone else's commitment to the Lord. And that's how God intends it to be, and that's not the way that the children of Israel were operating. And so the Lord sold them because of their uh, choice of, of rebelling against Him. He sold them, this is the bondage part of the cycle, into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Wait a second! Where have we seen this Canaan before? It's one of those groups of people God said, get them out of the land. We don't have to, you know, expel those not-so-terrible Canaanites from the land. They don't seem like they're such terrible people. We can get along with them. And uh, so here they are there, and the children of Israel fail to obey the Lord and driving out the Canaanites among uh, other people. And over time, just what God said would happen became happened. They ended up uh, going into bondage to the Canaanites. And it's a perfect picture of sin, and that is the sin in our lives that we fail to conquer will eventually conquer us. God knows what He's talking about when He says, do not do that. Do not give that a place in your life because that's going to take you bond into bondage someday. And so here they are in bondage to the very... They should have never been here. Simple obedience to God's Word. They, this was a chapter in their history that never needed to happen. So 
They were sold into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, that's his general, who dwelt in uh, Harasheth, uh, Hegoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, now that's the repentance part of the cycle. They hate the bondage and all. They cried out to the Lord for a deliverer. For Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. And so here they go into bondage once again. They're in uh, uh, bondage to Jabin, who harshly oppressed the children of Israel for 20 years. I'll tell you something. 20 years of bondage is way too high of a price to pay for sin. Especially when you know better. I remember when I was a younger person, and, uh, and you'd sometimes read about these different rock and rollers and um, that would, you know, you'd read about them that just would go into kind of this uh, drug haze for years. Eric Clapton was one of them. He came out with a biography recently and kind of writes about it and different things. But everybody's kind of known that he just got in this whole drug and alcohol thing. and He doesn't remember. Joe Cocker, the same. So many of them just into this thing. And and for me, even a person that wasn't walking with the Lord at the time, I just looked at it and said, man, to miss out on all of life, however fallen it is out there, to miss out on and not be able to remember anything for two years, for five years, for ten years, I'm sorry, that's too high of a price to pay. I don't care how good those drugs must be. It just, it just it never made sense to me. And, and so here they are, 20 years of bondage, 20 years lost because of, of their de- deliberate sin and rebellion against the Lord. Why not repent? I don't know who's in the room tonight. Maybe you're at 25 years. You know better. You're raised in the church. You know the Bible. You know a fair amount of it, all this stuff, and you're out there being crazy. And, and, and just losing one year after another. Repentance is an option here to turn back to the Lord. Now this Jabin, not only had, was he had held them in kind of a harsh oppression, we're told, for 20 years, but it was, uh, he had the military resources to do it. Sisera, his general, he had equipped this general with 900 chariots. Now a chariot in the ancient world was like a tank. If you, if you had a line of infantry out in a field or out in a valley or whatever for battle, and you had just one chariot, if you had three, four, five chariots, you just ran those horses at full speed, they'd penetrate that line, create chaos, you come in behind it, you've breached the line and you defeat the enemy. Very, very easy. Infantry would just go flying in all directions uh, through a, a charging chariot. To have 900, you picture it in your mind. I mean, how much space do you need to put 900 chariots with two horses each on them? I mean, that, that, thing, would ju- that thing could hit any line and create unbelievable destruction. We're going to see a little bit later in the next chapter 
that not only does Jabin and Sisera have all of these chariots, but the children of Israel hardly have any iron at all for tools, much less to make weapons out of. And so it was very easy to keep them oppressed uh, with this, uh, uh, the superiority of the weaponry of, of the Canaanites. So, but chariots have, uh, for all of their uh, great assets, they do have a couple of problems. Um, one big problem is if you try to use a chariot against God or against His people when He's no longer chastening His people. God doesn't see a chariot coming, oh, I wish there was someone I could call out to. There's none of that. Chariot's nothing. Bing. You ever do an ant? What's that ant? It goes, shh. It's flying out there. The other problem with chariots is they only work really good on flat land. Wow, this is chariot territory, right? Central Valley. So they work good on valleys, flat land. They don't work good in the hills, and they don't work good on wet ground, mushy ground. And, and God is going to use this to defeat this gigantic army of, of chariots. So they cried out, and, and verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, and a prophetess was someone who heard from God and spoke for God in her age. It's a tremendous calling that Deborah had. She was a prophetess, and she was the wife of Lapidoth. So all we know about Lapidoth is that Deborah was his wife, and she was judging Israel at that time. So she's a real special lady. She has the gift of prophecy operating in her life, and she is judging Israel at the time. It doesn't really mean that she was a judge in the way that these judges are spoken of. It means, as we're going to see in a moment, that when people had problems in their life and they were wondering, what does God's Word say about this? She was very, very conversant in the Word of God. They would bring their thing, problems to her. She would judge them in the light of the Word of God and then go on, on, uh, on their way. And so it, apparently, and as we're going to see in Barak and his lack of spirituality, at this point in time, the men within the culture had reached a real low ebb in terms of their spirituality. And so God now is using his kind of elders at the gate and, and for judging using a woman at, at uh, this point in time. I think that God's, one of the things that Deborah teaches us as a judge, she teaches us related to our lives and our ministries, is that the social status of an individual in society is not of any great significance to the Lord. It's spirituality that means the most to Him. And I don't think He had, God isn't going to look and say, well, um, I'm going to put in a C-minus spiritual guy into this position when I've got an A-plus spiritual woman to put in this position, even though the culture was patriarchal and it was uh, male-dominated and women were looked down on as inferior by, to men in many ways. Uh, but here we see that, that if God determined that a woman was the best person to use for his purposes, then he would use a woman. And so I like that because, and it's one of the things I love about the Calvary Chapel movement is you can come from any background and they'll give you a shot. <laughs> Why in the world am I here? I mean, you can come from the wrong side of the track. You can come from the wrong side of double tracks, triple tracks. And it, you get saved and you start walking with the Lord and there's a chance to be used uh, by the Lord. No respect of persons in, in this way. I think it's interesting to realize that 
in the early church that when the church would come together, Christians would come together for church, that there'd be slaves in the church, there'd be slave owners uh, in the church, and they'd all be sitting equally in that setting before, uh, before God. There was no, I'm, okay, here's the, the uh, uh, master uh, section, and then here's the slave section. They all sat equally uh, in that room. And more than that, God having a sense of humor, he could, he could gift and call a man who was a slave all through the rest of the week to be the pastor of that church, to be the elder of the church. So his master sitting in the congregation listening to this guy lead the church or teach the Bible study or whatever uh, it, it was, and, and so all of, uh, and the master, he might have a gift of mercy, he might have a gift of helps, and the, the role that they enjoyed with one another all through the week completely reversed in the kingdom side of things. And, and that's just the way that God could, could work and, and does work, where he just looks and says, I know what I want, I know who I want to choose, and, and I'm going to choose it to be uh, this way. So a master could have physical, society-given authority over his slave all through the week, but then in the church of God, he could then give, God could then give a slave spiritual authority over his master. But then God warned the slave, all right, when Monday comes and you're out in that field, he's the boss again. So don't be getting anything into your head and messing all this up. Be a bad witness. But it's interesting how God can look and says, I will choose whoever I want to choose, no matter what side of the tracks they come from or what their situation in life is. So, she was a prophetess, she was a judge, and boy, low overhead, this was tremendous. She would sit, verse 5, under the palm tree of Deborah. So she, there was a place everybody knew, she sits there, kind of, these are her hours and during the week. That's the palm tree of Deborah, that's where you come with your problems. It's right between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came to her for judgment, biblical judgment related to the situations in their life. And then she sent and she called for Barak, the son of uh, Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hands. And so she comes to Barak, she has a word from the Lord that Barak has been called by God now to be the next judge. He gives Barak the whole uh, military plan. This is who I want. This is the number of men from Israel I want fighting in this battle, 10,000. They're to come from these tribes. I want you to stage these troops by Mount Tabor, by the river Kishon, and I'm going to bring Sisera and battle against you with all 900 of those tanks and in uh, uh, the chariots. And so gives the word, but then, so that nobody, he's not afraid about any, anything, at the end there of verse 7, he gives them the promise of victory. I will deliver him into your hand. It isn't a case of, boy, I'm going to bring him in there and do the best you can. Well, I'll see you later. See you after all that. God gives him the guarantee that he is going to be uh, successful here. And so he's called really to be the next judge in Israel. Barak's, um, he, his, uh, 
response is an interesting one. He said to Deborah, if you go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I bet he wishes that. I bet he'd love to have that sentence back, like one week later. You ever wish you could have a sentence back? Oh, boy. So he looks, and, and, and a lot of people look at him and say, well, look at the little sissy boy. What he's got to take, going to take, have a woman go and take him by the hand and lead him out into battle. I tell you, is that the condition of the men? I don't look at him that way because he's going to go out into battle in just a few verses. And he's going to lead the children of Israel in a battle against, against Sisera and, and with tremendous bravery. Also, in the book of Hebrews, and I know that in the New Testament, Old Testament figures are spoke, you know, seen with tremendous grace, just as God sees us with tremendous grace, but he is spoken of as one of the great heroes of the faith in, in the Old Testament. And I think that he is called one of the, the heroes in you know, subduing kings and armies and these kind of things because he was willing to go into battle. I think that what Barak's problem is here in this situation is his lack of spirituality, his lack of confidence in his personal relationship with God. He knows Deborah hears the Lord, but he's not sure that he hears the Lord. He's not close enough with God to, to be confident in that. Can I just say related to this, this whole thing? I think it's a fault in Barak. And I think one of the lessons that we learn from him is to... We have to be careful not to fritter away months and years of our lives... Instead of becoming, going deeper in Christ, more mature in Christ, just wasting months and years having Him go by, months and years that God intends for our character to be developed, our faith to be developed, because He knows one day He's going to knock on our door and say, listen, i got a battle I want to take you into, and my glory is at stake, and the safety and the deliverance of my people is at stake. And it happens all of the time. And, and we're here to serve anybody we can serve, and, and I, I'm exhorting myself on this. But over and over again, gigantic trials or God calls a person to a step of faith in ministry or some kind of a situation arises and a person is not up to the circumstance because they wasted decades of Christian life, not growing in their relationship with the Lord, when God knew you need to be doing that because stuff is coming your way that you need to be ready for opportunity ministry-wise. And so I think one of the greatest things a, a, a person can do, let's say you sit here as a young person today or an older person, doesn't matter, you think God has called me, I feel that God has called me to be a pastor someday or He's called me to be a missionary, He's called me to be an evangelist or a prophet or a teacher, whatever, anything, any kind of, any kind of calling they might have on our lives. The single greatest thing that you can do in preparation for that is to learn the Bible. 
Because whether I, I have the gift of mercy or have the gift of helps or the gift of a pastor or the gift of a teacher, a knowledge of the Bible is always going to be something that God can use. So that's never wasted time. Important to always be going deeper in the things of God and not to be wasting time. We don't know what God's got for us right around the corner. And I think Barak was not spiritually what he should have been at the time and uh, in intimacy of his relationship with the Lord. And so he, he wanted to have her along. And so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you're taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera, this general, evidently, uh, 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 he would have, uh, Barak would have killed Sisera in battle, but now the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That's how he's going to die. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak uh, to Kadesh. And so, and it's one of the interesting things because ultimately he's going to be, this great general is going to be killed by a, uh, a, a woman and a pretty tough, <laughs> pretty tough lady, a Kenite. And uh, she, he's, he's going to be killed. And when you think about this whole incident in Israel's history, almost no one remembers Barak. They remember Deborah, and, and they uh, remember Jael, who was going to kill the general. And the third person they remember, though, is Barak. And so because of his lack of faith, his willingness to step up, and obey the Lord here. He kind of is uh, third in, in terms of people's remembrance of, of this great moment in, in Jewish history. Now, uh, Barak, he then called Zebulun and Naphtali to, uh, to uh, Kadesh. And he went up with the 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. And now Heber, the Kenite, uh, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at uh, uh, Naim, which is beside uh, Kadesh. And so we're introduced to this man by the name of Heber. He's a Kenite. We're introduced to him because his wife is going to kill Sisera. So we need to know a little bit uh, about him here. And, and he was... A descendant. He was a, a, a Kenite. The Kenites were descendants of uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and they had kind of been absorbed by uh, one of the, the tribes, the tribe of Judah in the south of, of Israel. For some reason, he breaks out from among his people, and he separates himself. He settles near Kadesh, and um, and maybe some, you know, it was better for business or something like that. And, and so this sets the stage, though, for his wife's introduction later in the account. And they reported to Sisera, uh, Heber, and, and the Kenites that were with him. They kind of, you know, uh, snitched on, uh, on uh, Barak and all the troops that were going up to Mount Tabor. They reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of uh, Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. In other words, he's kind of calling you out. He's, he has put forces together for battle. So, uh, and, and basically what uh, uh, Heber is, is he, he's kind of a survivor. He's like, it, it, it's like um, if you're Latvia in a battle between the United States and Russia. You just look and say, okay, who's winning at the moment? I'll go with the winning side. There's no power 
So at this point in time, it looks like the children of Israel have no chance of defeating Sisera. So he's going to help Sisera out. A little bit later, Sisera is, uh, loses the battle, and his wife is going to realize, all right, the winning side is with the Jews. Let's jump over to the Jews. Listen, it's not a, it, it doesn't speak well of their character, but that's kind of where they were in life, and they're not the last of those kind of people. So he told Sisera, this is what's going on. And so Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. I mean, he's just going to crush in his mind, this rebellion, and all the people were, who were with him from uh, Harasheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. And then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Could we have a little artillery? Something to knock out those 900 chariots? Uh, has not the Lord gone out before you? Call off the artillery. <laughs> this is better. And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. I mean, they got a bunch of tools and a few of them got weapons and the whole thing. I mean, they're heading out into battle. These are not cowards. Barak is not, not a coward and these men are not cowards uh, either. And so they head off into uh, this battle. Now, is, is Barak and, and God, is a, he, he does things decently in order, and he's a great tactician, actually. So he wants uh, Barak to engage the Sisera at Mount Tabor, because at Mount Tabor, there is, uh, the, in a mountainous kind of area, the uh, chariots are largely useless. They're really tough to race those things uphill. So the Jewish forces are up a little ways on the mountain. And so Sisera comes with this great army, the 900 chariots. He crosses the brook uh, Kishon, which is dry at this time. He crosses that brook and he comes now to the base of, of Mount Tabor in order to wipe out the children of Israel. What he does not know, and we learn in the song that Deborah and Barak write related to this in the next chapter, is that the Lord now, at that point in time, supernaturally intervenes. He sends a great rainstorm into the region, which turns the brook Kishon into a raging river, and the entire battlefield becomes a bog. And all 900 of those chariots are now worse than useless. There's nothing you can do with them. And as the horses are jumping around and the men are trying to get turned around and 900 chariots, you've got to have room to move those things around. Everyone turns into a panic. While they're in a panic and they're not used to this hand-to-hand -hand fighting, they're chariot drivers all of these men of Israel come then down out of the mountain and now they're in a military situation where mobile infantry and people that can do hand-to-hand -hand combat have the upper hand and they then rout uh, the army of the Canaanites. And that's exactly what happens, verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And it was just the Lord doing whatever was necessary in order to give that uh, deliverance. I, I, one of the great, wonderful things about growing older in the Lord, and, and all of them are spiritual, none of them are physical. 
But one of the great things about growing older in the Lord is you always believe theologically in the providence of God that He overrules things and He gets His will done however He wants it. He, he rules the world. And this thing, this whole, the world is not out of control. It is headed absolutely to its God-appointed end. No other end. You don't have to watch a movie or anything and, and wonder whether an asteroid's going to hit the earth and wipe us all out. Not in the book of Revelation. Not going to happen to us. This is all working toward God's, uh, his, his final end on things. And it's wonderful as we grow older in the Lord to appreciate the providence of God. Where you just realize, look at I know it looks like that, but I've seen this kind of situation over and over again. And all you've got to do is give God time and watch what He does here. And, and He is. He's in control. And so here is this, His routed the, the Sisera, all of his chariots, his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And then Sisera, this chariot, he's in a chariot. It's good for nothing now. He alights from his chariot and he ran away on foot. And so now the army is not only bogged down in this great mud field, but uh, their leader has fled from them. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot, and uh, he had fled to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And so, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, who was over the, uh, over the Canaanites. Uh, Sisera was his general. And so he figured, okay, this is a house that I can come into. These are friends of the king. I'll be safe here. And so they came into the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera. He's fleeing in battle, said to him, she's smart, man. She's smart. She realizes if this guy's running and he ain't in his chariot anymore, the Jews are top dog now. So she, I mean, she can run another flag up. Get this Israeli flag up on the flagpole of the compound, you know. Get that, get that Canaanite flag down. I'll tell you, it's funny. You live long enough, you see a lot. So here she is, and she says to him, Turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And again, the great rainstorm, he's cold. And then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. There's a thirst of battle that's indescribable. And so she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and then covered him up with a blanket. And he said to her, uh, stand at the door of the tent. If any man comes searching for me, inquires of you, and says, is there any man here? I mean, he knew they were coming after him. You shall say no. So he's got the whole thing working. Worked out, and then we're going to see in a moment he fell asleep. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground. Last thing that went through his mind. Okay, yuck, 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 yuck. It's terrible. I'm, ash I'm ashamed of myself. I'm really not. That's an old joke, but it, those are the jokes I love. Because 
He was fast asleep and weary, and so he died. Now, putting up tents in those days, and even among the Bedouin today, in Israel, woman's work. The Bedouin men go over and get a cup of coffee going when they change camps. The woman puts all the tent, gets the herd, get the whole encampment ready. They sit there and have baklava and, and hot coffee or something. I don't know what they have for dessert. They sit around too. So, so these women aren't like, you know, we look some kind of little petite, frail thing. I mean, they've got guns on them. They could shoot. They come up there. And, and some of you have been to Israel and you've seen some of the Bedouin women. I mean, whoa, tough. <laughs> if I was married to one of them, honey, you feeling good about me tonight before I go to sleep? You know, I mean, whoo, man. Bedouin woman. Get away, Bedouin woman. Listen what I say. So, so anyway, they they take they're they're really tough. Boom, and and she takes she kills him, and so he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I'll show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. And on that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, and the land of the children of Israel grew uh, the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And so the the great victory that occurs and then very quickly through this song that they wrote, Deborah and Barak, chapter five the son of Abinoam sang on that day. So they composed a song related to the victory. So listen, when God does something that dramatic and that miraculous and wonderful in your life, they said, we need to praise him and let's make up a song related to this event with which we can give him praise. I wonder, you know, you think about uh, the, the men and women who write worship songs in the body of Christ. And aren't you thankful for them? the gift that God has given them. I mean, they've got a current relationship with the Lord and there's just this constant stream of songs that's coming out of their relationship with the Lord that, that we get to be able to sing to the Lord too. And you think about how many of those songs come out of some significant event in their life that they then put to, to song and then we say, hey, we've been in something like that too and we're able to sing it to the Lord. And so it was, it was written in order to praise the Lord, but it was also written these these um, these kind of histories of God's great deliverance of the children of Israel, they were put to song for the purpose of memorization. You can, some, sometimes, if you have a terrible memory for memorizing just like this paragraph or something or a page from some kind of a book, put it to song and it's amazing how much you can memorize when it's put to a song. So they did that so that the people would not forget the, the great event that had occurred, they could just begin, somebody start to hum it, you know, and hey, boom, 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 and the whole, yeah, wasn't that great? And that's how the whole thing uh, would work. You think about maybe, uh, I don't know, sometimes I think you, you, they had come out with these statistics about how much in school, um, how illiterate uh, by degrees each generation is in terms of U.S. history. It's, it doesn't seem to be important, you know, maybe to the learner and this kind of stuff. And so why learn it and these rote facts and all this kind of thing? Maybe put it to song. That'd be something. 
Okay, well, anyway, that would... It's worth thinking about. Whenever somebody comes along and they get this whole, like a whole album on American history, you can, you can remember, okay. Listen, we'll just move right on related to this. You do what you, when you've got a memory like mine, you do whatever you can to be able to remember. So they give praise when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. They recognize this victory came because two things came together among God's people after God did his thing. And that was leaders were willing to lead, Deborah and Barak. By the way, leading is a gift of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. Where someone, God just gives them that gift, He gives them that calling, and they have, I think He couples with it a gift of faith, where they have a willingness to risk everything to obey God and lead in a particular direction. It's a gift. But no leader is worth anything if God doesn't then take other people, bear witness to what's going on, where this man is leading them, and they say, I agree with that, I want to be a part of that work of God, and they come alongside the leader. So it takes both, they praise the Lord for both. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, I, even I, will sing to the Lord, I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens poured, the clouds also poured waters, the mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. And so here, interestingly, in verse 4 and 5, they, as they're writing this song, they go way back to God's taking care of them uh, in, in taking the children of Israel out of Egypt from Mount Sinai to the promised land. And basically what they're saying is this. They're so excited. God, we've been reading all of these years about what you did with the children of Israel to bring them out of Egypt, your power, all those things that you did, and now you've done those very same things in our moment in human history. All that stuff that we've been reading about now we have experienced it. One of the great things, and again, it takes a little while as we just walk with the Lord long enough, one of the great things about, say, reading the book of Acts. So you open up the Bible and you go to the book of Acts, and so often it's entitled, The Acts of the Apostles. If it was the Acts of the Apostles, it would be one page long. A lot of the Bibles, they entitle it properly, The Acts of of the Holy Spirit. And how fun it is to be able to read the book of Acts after we've walked with the Lord for a while and say, I felt that. I've seen that. I've experienced that. That's just not something God did 2,000 years ago. That's something I've experienced in my own life too. I know what a word of wisdom is. I know what a word of knowledge is. I know what a prophecy is. I know what that looks like and that feels like. If not in my own life, watching it in the lives of others. And it's exciting. And they are excited. Now, in verse 6, they speak about the condition of the land 
prior to the Lord's deliverance. In the days of Shamgar, remember one of the judges, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, uh, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. It was so lawless, so many bandits on the road, so many oppressors because of, of, of these, these people that had, had taken over the land of Israel. It wasn't safe to walk on the main roads. You'd be robbed or you'd be beaten and, and, and abused. And so all of the children of Israel learned the back roads and they just kind of snuck around and hoped they could get from one place to another. No way to live. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel. In other words, there was so much crime in the land that even in the smaller villages, people wouldn't head out of their house into the street lest they become a victim of crime. And, and so, the, so the village life, everybody being a family, coming together, picnics, birthdays, all this kind of stuff, none of that was happening anymore because there was just lawlessness in the land. Until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. And we hit it on Mother's Day. How wonderful this is. I love this about Deborah. You ask a guy who is a father, and you say, hey, what are you all about? Well, I'm a, if he's in kind of, if he's a male counterpart to Deborah, he'd say, well, I'm, I'm a prophet, and I'm a judge, and I got some kids, I guess I'm a father too. You ask a mom that same question, hey, what are you all about? I'm a mom. And by the way, secondary to that, I happen to be a prophetess and I happen to be a judge. So this is what she's all about. And I think it's very important to, to have this, you moms, you look at the world, you look at things in a way that maybe other people don't by virtue of being a mom. You have a concern for your children. You have a concern for your grandchildren. You have a concern for where the culture is going. And you have a concern as you look at that and you say, I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for my grandkids. I'm going to make myself available to God and whatever He calls me to do to turn this mess around, I will do it. She was what she was, not in order to have some title among God's people. She became what she became because she was a mom who wanted things to change for her family. The promptings of a mom's heart. And so the Lord used her. She doesn't say, I'm, I'm the prophetess and I'm the judge. She said, listen, God chose, I'm just a mother in Israel. And that's who God used. They chose new gods, speaking of the idolatry and the reason the country was in the mess that it was in. And then there was war in the gates. The whole land was filled with violence. Not a, a shield or a spear had, that was seen among 40,000 uh, in Israel. So this is where we realize that not only were the uh, children of Israel facing 900 of these chariots in battle, but they were largely unarmed themselves. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people, bless the Lord. And so he just gives praise once again that the leaders and the people came together at that moment in history and God used them for the victory. Speak you who ride on white donkeys, 
talking about the powerful in the culture who sit in judges' attire and who walk along uh, the road. And the ones who walk along the road, those are the poor, the common man. So here's a call for both the powerful and the powerless to join together in praising the Lord. Far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. And then they list in this song kind of the hall of fame in terms of the tribes and the people that stepped up and risked their lives for this this victory. And these tribes are spoken of with great honor. Then the survivors came down, and the people against the nobles. And the Lord came down from me against the mighty. From Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin. These are all tribes that, that they heard about the battle, they were called to battle, and they came even against unbelievable odds. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, rulers came down. From Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As Issachar, so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command. And so it's a time to remember these men and women that risked their lives at this, this time in their history. Then at this particular point, halfway verse 15, there is the hall of shame, the tribes who refuse to enter into the fight. And, and it's interesting that God made that a part of the song too. Among the divisions of Reuben, the tribe of, of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings of the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart, and so he speaks about their failure to come uh, into uh, into the battle. It's interesting that as he as he writes about them here, they were people, and you, and we recognize it in ourselves today, and and we have to recognize it as a bad thing. He says of the tribe of Reuben, I mean, when you heard about this battle and the need to come in and join this battle, they really thought hard about it. They really discussed it a lot. They agonized in their hearts over it. They had every intention of, uh, of joining the fight ultimately. The problem is they never did. It was all just all talk and, and no walk. Good intentions that never ever found expression. And ultimately, they refused to put themselves at risk and to go into the battle. And so many people like that today, they talk and they talk and they talk and they discuss and they discuss and they intend and they talk and they never pull the trigger. They never enter into Christian service. So it's a very real thing to stay aware of. Gilead stayed beyond the sea, uh, beyond rather the Jordan. And so that's talking about the half-tribe of Manasseh. They wouldn't even cross the Jordan River to help. They couldn't be bothered. And then he talks about Dan. And why did Dan remain on ships? And so they stayed 
on the ships offshore, concerned only with their own safety and their own uh, uh, you know, ease. And Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. And so they just idly sat by the seashore uh, while their brethren were fighting for their lives to deliver the children of Israel from this, uh, this great bondage. And so to them it was just out of sight, out of mind. And what we have here is what is known as the sin of omission. There is the sin of commission where I purposely do wrong in violation of God's Word. And I think there's a tendency in our lives to think of sin only in the context of commission. But it is just as great a sin, this thing called the sin of omission, what the Bible declares to know to do good in a given situation, but to refuse to do that good is a sin. It is the sin of omission. And, and uh, the, spoken of in the, the whole New Testament is, is uh, Paul speaks of it, Jesus speaks of it, and you think about how many people would never ever... Uh, purposely commit a sin of commission, but they think nothing of committing the sin of omission. They're never going to steal. They're never going to lie. They're never going to assault anyone, nothing like that. But they never enter into Christian service or the spiritual war that's being waged for the souls of mankind in the world today. And it's sobering to realize that the Lord took note of those who chose to enter into this righteous battle and he took note of those who refused to enter into that battle and he takes note today of those who refuse to enter into his work and his battle and the spiritual warfare that's associated with it today. And the Bible says one day we're going to give an account for that. The sin of Omission, a failure to be faithful to what God has called us uh, to do. Now, so there's this shame. And then in verse 18, Zebulun is a people who jeopardize their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. So he returns, they return now to the tribes that really went. These were the Green Beret. They went above and beyond. The kings came forth, speaking of Sisera coming to fight the children of Israel. Then the kings of Canaan, kind of reenactment, they fought in, in uh, Ta'anach, by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. This is talking about the children of Israel. They didn't enter the battle for money. They entered it to obey God and for the good of people. Then they fought from the heavens, talking about God's supernatural intervention in the battle. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. So this is how we know that the whole battlefield got bogged down. God sending that storm. Oh my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded. The galloping, galloping of his steeds. And so you can just picture the horses in the mud and they're trying to get turned around and you know all of the nostrils flaring and the great strength of the beasts and, and they're reenacting this in this kind of poetic form. And then God 
comes back to curse one more time those that fail to get into the battle and specifically curse Meros, said the angel of the Lord. This comes from the throne. Curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to the help of the Lord to help uh, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. And God publicly calls them out and he shames them. I I think we're in a very interesting moment in time in United States history. This nation is going to go, it's, it's divided right down the middle. I don't need to tell you that. We may yet, as Christians, kind of lose the righteousness war or the, the culture war in this, in this country, and it may just go headlong in, into sin. And you know, I don't even mind losing that battle on one hand as long as everybody that's supposed to be in the battle is in the battle. And I, I think we are desperately in need today of the prophetic voice from God among His people in this culture. And it begins in the pulpit. I forget who it was that said long ago when the United States was becoming its own country, somebody came over from England or wherever to discover the greatness of this nation. And they said the greatness of this nation is in its pulpits where you still had men who were willing to declare the right and wrong, the yea and nay of God's Word to an audience, it was still influential in the culture. I call on myself. From this little speck on planet Earth, 4300 American Avenue, I call on every pastor in the United States of America to stand and be a voice for God's Word in this culture before the battle is lost. It needs to happen. And no more Larry King or any environment that we end on and we send a mixed signal about what God's Word says about these issues of right and wrong in the culture. I don't care if it's homosexuality. I don't care if it's abortion. I don't care if it's violence. I don't care if it's white-collar crime or blue-collar crime or gangs or whatever it might be. We are losing our voice in this culture because we are more concerned about being liked than being faithful to God. In this culture... You should have people that would walk into any one of a hundred churches in Modesto, any one of tens of thousands of churches in the United States of America, and they should hit the same message no matter where they go. The same definition of right and wrong and good and bad, and thus saith the Lord. There should be no mixed signal coming from the pulpit. 
But what is true of the pulpit is true of all of us as individuals in the body of Christ too. We can no longer, no matter whether it's our sons, our daughters, our mothers, our fathers, our best friends who are heavily invested in these sins, we cannot remain silent in the face of it. We have a responsibility even on a private level to enforce the same message so that when people hit the body of Christ, they are getting a uniform biblical message of what God's Word says about these issues, no matter what Christian they run into. The problem we're running into is people come and they hear Christians who are biblical, they give a biblical uh, uh, representation of what God says on these issues, and they just go and find ten other Christians who don't agree with that. And there is the responsibility for each of us to make a stand in the spiritual battle that is going on in the world today. It doesn't mean that you stand up on the conference table tomorrow at work and preach to them. But what it means with great love and great wisdom to be able to say in private conversations where someone's saying, you know, I don't think it's really a big deal what's happening with marriage. I don't think it's any kind of a problem with people just living together and shacking up and all this kind of thing. I don't see what the big deal is with legalizing drugs. And somewhere, Christians, even if it costs them, the relationship have to step up and say, I at least say, I don't believe that. I see it a different way. And here's why I see it a different way. And to throw God's perspective into the mix before it's too late. Everybody wants to be liked. Believe it or not, I like to be liked. But I don't like to be liked so much that I'll be unfaithful to God. Even in my private, personal life. And God here is this moment in time, in human history, and God calls these weasels out for being cowards. What's the old saying? Uh, the old saying is, silence isn't always golden. Sometimes it's just plain yellow. And that's the truth. The truth has to be spoken in love. You don't have to get big veins popping out of your face like I'm doing right now. But the truth needs to be spoken. However it goes with your personality and the Word of God and how that happens and who you're talking to. But people need to hear, no, that's wrong. Because God says this, and let me tell you about the wisdom of God's position on, on that particular issue. But it means we're going to need to know our Bibles and we're going to have to have an answer for these things. So I love the challenge of, of this passage. And I'll tell you, I can live with just about anything. People like you, they don't like you, all those things. Again, I don't, I'm not a stone. I mean, I like to be liked and all. But I never, ever, ever want to hear verse 23 from the Lord directed toward me. I never want to be found in the camp of Meros in my little bit of time in God's history on planet earth. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Hebrew the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked Sisera for water. She gave him milk. 
She brought out a, a cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Cicero. Cicero, she pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. I don't know what kind of a melody you put to this. Kind of a little lilting thing back and forth. <laughs> At her feet she, he sank, he fell, he lay still. At her feet he sank, he fell. There he, where he sank, there he fell dead. Now, I can kid about it, because Cicero hasn't robbed me of 20 years of my life with his oppression. This was a great celebration. Ding, dong, the witch is dead. Sisera is dead. It was something to give praise for. So two women in Sisera's life, the one who killed him here, and then closes, the song does, with the mother of Sisera looking through the window. She's, he's late coming back from battle. She cried out through the lattice, Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariot? She's, she's concerned. And her wisest ladies answered her. Yes, she answered herself. This is what they told themselves. Are they not fi finding and dividing the spoil? To every man a girl or two. This is called rape. For Sisera, plunder of dyed garments. They're just stealing from people that work for all of this. Plunder of garments embroidered and dyed. Two pieces of dyed uh, embroidery for the neck of the looter. What kind, and here's, now, here's another mother on Mother's Day. <laughs> the kind of mother you don't want to be. It's very hard to feel any compassion for this mother and the loss of her son when she is looking at, at like it's nothing for him to be leading people out into the rape and the pillage and the stealing and the looting and the burning down of people in their villages. Let all, thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength and so the land had rest for 40 years. If the men will come forward and the worship team come forward, we'll prepare to enjoy the Lord's Supper.